Let me remind you that this weekend, this big weekend of life of our church, and one of the brightest, most delightful things you can join us in, the Intermissions Conference. If you do not have one of these or didn't get one this morning, make sure you pick one up, because on the back it has the schedule. Friday night we'll be gathering to, to pray, which is vital for our, our missions work. We'll talk about that today. Saturday evening, the uh, bazaar, Missions Bazaar, an auction that will be in here. Uh, bring your checkbook, feel generous, and donate wildly. Uh, that's a tremendous amount of fun. Sunday morning, Nathan Knight, one of our church planners in Washington, D.C., will be back to share God's Word with us. And then one thing that's not on here, uh, Sunday afternoon, next Sunday afternoon at 4.30, we will be having our chai party in the lobby to update you on our India trip. So if you are interested in one of those six families that are serving in India or hearing some great stories, what's going on there, or you just have a passion for India, or if you just like really good chai, come to the lobby Next Sunday at 4.30, we'll, we'll tell some stories and update you and have a chance to pray a bit for those specific families. Um, this morning, I want to talk to you about, a, there's a conundrum that kind of enters into the realm of physics, and that is what happens when an unstoppable force meets an immovable object, Okay. Some of you have probably wrestled with that late awake at night, thinking about that, reflecting on that. And from what I can gather, according to our physics guys, they tell us that, that it just can't happen. That those two things cannot exist and they cannot exist simultaneously, so no worries. But popular culture has a better answer, probably. His name is Chuck Norris. What happens when an unstoppable force meets an immovable object? Chuck Norris claps his hands. Exactly. That's what we're talking about this morning. But even though physics tell us that it can't happen in the spiritual realm, there is a kind of unstoppable force, and that is the gospel, the good news about Jesus. And based on the promises that God gives us in His, world, in His Word, we are to believe that the gospel will spread to the end ends of the world. You remember in Acts chapter 1, you remember this? Jesus, uh, the risen Christ, says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. It's one of those prophetic promises that Jesus gives to us. John has a, has a vision of the throne room of God in the book of Revelation, and this is what he sees. They sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. And it's talking to Jesus here. It says, for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. It is a, it's a glimpse of the sure future in the hands of a God who keeps his promises. Jesus said famously, that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church and, and our advance into the very ends of the earth. God promises it will be so. The gospel is an unstoppable force. Sometimes it doesn't feel like that to us, though. Sometimes you talk to a friend or a family member that you love deeply and you care about a great deal and you endeavor to speak with them about Christ and His love for them 
and the gospel is stopped. They ridicule you or they mock you or they are just disinterested in you or they found another spiritual path that they like or they're so deeply mired in their sin that you're not sure they could ever break free. I imagine that's, that's how it had to feel to people who were living in China in 1951. See, in 1951, the communists had come to power and in 1951, they evicted every single Christian missionary from that country. And I'm sure it seemed like the gospel had been stopped. But since that time, China has gone from 700,000 Christians in 1951, now, by some estimates, to in excess of 100 million Christians uh, in China. Um, now, even the, the most conservative estimates that put it here somewhere between 160 million people, when they make their projections, 15 years from now, they're saying there are going to be 250 million Christians in China. And that will make them having more Christians in China than in the United States. See, the gospel is an unstoppable force. And what we want to do today is look in on an incident in a man's life that, kind of pl that plays out for us on that kind of micro level. And I hope it will encourage you. As you think about and pray about, redouble your efforts to pray for, especially those you love who are far from Christ. And yet... You have an unshakable burden to pray for them. So open your Bibles to Acts chapter 13, and I would like to pray for us and for you especially. Uh, a favor, uh, if you would pray for me, I still have India in my throat, and I spent the entire first service yelling at all those honorary people in first service, so my voice is real weak. So if you guys could pray for me, I would appreciate it as I pray for you. Thank you. Father, fill us with hope. Fill us with hope that the, that the gospel is greater. The good news about Jesus and his love for us, his death on the cross, his resurrection is greater than our sin. All our sins. Past sins. Present sins that trip us up. Future sins. And not just for us but for our family members we love and neighbors we deeply care about who are far from you. Grant us a great um, faith in your mercy that it really is greater than all our sin. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, and next chapter 13, we find out that there was in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, and there are five of them, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, a member of the court of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. And the good news is, hey, there's a church in Antioch. Okay? The gospel is beginning to spread just like Jesus said it would. It's the year around A.D. 45 at this point, and, uh, and the gospel has moved out from Jerusalem um, by means of persecution primarily. It's moved up to the island of Cyprus, 
and up into Samaria and, Samaria and Judea and all the way up to Antioch, the city that we're focusing on, as well as the island of Cyprus um, today. And in this young church that's been established in Antioch, already there, there's not one leader, there's a handful of leaders. And we learn from that that from the very beginning, churches were established with a plurality of leaders. The Apostle Paul is one of the leaders. He goes by his Hebrew name there, Saul. Um, he's one of the leaders, but they don't call it Paul's church. Okay? It's not Paul's church. In fact, Paul is the last of the leaders listed. He, he's probably the, the newbie uh, in, in the group. Um, and so when, when we refer to a church and we say, oh, that's so-and-so's church, that's Piper's church, or that's so-and-so's church, that's not true. First of all, it's Christ's church. But healthy biblical churches are led by a plurality of leaders. That's why it would be absolute folly to say, oh, that's Larry Trotter's church. Unless you're saying that's where Larry Trotter goes, then yes, it's my church. But our church follows this practice of a plurality of leaders in our church of elders who shepherd Christ's church. Um, and not only is there a plurality of them here, but they're a diverse group of guys. Barnabas was a Greek-speaking Jew from Cyprus. He's from Cyprus. Keep that in mind. Simeon may well have been a black man from Africa. His nickname, Niger, means black. Um, so well before the gospel got to the people of Europe, it had reached this man from Africa. Okay. Lucius was from Cyrene in North Africa. Menaean, interestingly, it says he grew up with Herod. Yeah, that Herod, Herod Agrippa, um, the one who would be headed James. Menaean grew up with him in some form or fashion, whether kin or household servant. But in all likelihood, he was a man highly educated and very wealthy. And then you have Saul. We know him as Paul, a Jew from Tarsus who studied under Gamaliel in Jerusalem. This is an amazing collection of men, radically diverse. The church welcomes diversity okay, from the start. So if you come to North Wake, sometimes you feel kind of like a minority. Know that you are here as a gift from God to us to help us see the breadth of His love and His mission, that it's for all peoples. And you're here as a gift to us um, because God loves diversity in His church. It's a reflection of the scope of His love and His mission for all peoples. Well, while these five were worshiping the Lord and fasting, and it probably is a reference as well to the larger church, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they sailed down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. Now again... Another snapshot of the church, right? The early church in Acts. What are they doing? They're praying. This is what the church does. Every, almost every time we see a snapshot of the church, they're praying. This time with a special focus on her leaders. They are worshiping, they are fasting, and they are praying. 
And I, I hope that you are praying for our, our elders in our church who lead and shepherd our church. We desperately covet your prayers. And one of the things you can pray for us is that we would protect these priorities in our life and ministry. We have so many important things to talk about, and our elders do not lack for ideas. And so sometimes our ideas and our thoughts can preoccupy us and, and we'll cheat our, on the time we set aside to pray or to fast or to worship. And so really good things can usurp even more important things. Pray for us. Pray that we would be men marked by this and that this would mark our church of people given to worship and to fasting and to prayer. And it does say there twice, um, you notice that they were, they were fasting. Uh, twice it mentions that. Once prior to the Spirit speaking, and then they fasted and prayed again when they found out what the Spirit wanted them to do. Those are two times when they desperately need God. The first time, I can imagine that they were probably seeking God's guidance based on what the Spirit provided for them. I imagine that they realized that everywhere they looked, again, look at this map. See, Jesus says, go where? To the ends of the earth and be my witnesses. And they'd gone like in their backyard. And everywhere they look, everywhere they step, they're meeting people who've never heard of Jesus. No one outside of those little arrows has heard the message of Jesus yet. And so overwhelmed by that, I imagine they begin to pray and they begin to fast and they worship God and seek what He's supposed to do. And the Spirit comes in response to their prayers and fasting and worship and says, send Paul and Barnabas to the work that I've set apart for them. And as soon as He says, send out Barnabas, who is their primary pastor and teacher, and Saul, who is the primary one gifted and called to go to, to reach uh, the Gentiles, the nations, two of their five leaders were to be sent out. They realized, oh, we got to pray again. Two of our leaders are leaving. And you know what? There was no IMB, okay? No international mission board. There was no strategy that they could pull up online for how do you reach unreached people groups. There was no funding mechanism in place. It was all new. It was all uncharted. And they are mindful in these two instances, I'm sure, of their great need for God. And so they pray and they fast. And fasting is probably the least popular of spiritual disciplines, especially amongst Southern Baptists. Feasting, yeah, got it. Fasting, not, not so much. That's not one that we're real excited about. But it's, it's um, repeatedly given to us in the Scriptures. It is not commanded of us in the New Testament as the church, but it is commended to us by the example of the early church for sure, and much, much more. Donald Whitney wrote a book on the spiritual disciplines. That's a very helpful book. And in it, he has a chapter on fasting, and he lists a number of reasons to fast and what fasting can accomplish. Don't try to write this down. You'll, you'll probably hurt yourself. I'll post this on the web later this week, and you can write it down there. But just listen to the beautiful reasons and things that fasting accomplishes in us. Fasting strength. We can fast to strengthen prayer. We can fast to seek God's guidance. We can fast to express grief. We can fast to seek from God deliverance or protection. We can fast to express repentance and return to God. 
We can fast to humble ourselves before God. We can fast to express concern for the work of God, to minister to the needs of others, to overcome temptation and dedicate yourself to God, and to express love and worship to God. And you'll notice that all those are freighted with a number of scriptural references out of which this kind, these ideas and teachings about fasting come. And as I read those things, that list of things, those make sense to me today. If that's what fasting is to be done for and what fasting does in us, then it's a, it's a really valuable thing for us to participate in today, not just long ago, but today. Fasting has broadly been defined as the voluntary denial of a normal function for the sake of intense spiritual activity. So even though in the scriptures fasting is often about food, it could also be about other things. So you could give up a meal and take that time that you would have given to the meal, the preparation and eating of the meal, to pray and seek God, and whereby you establish that you need God even more than you need food. It's a reminder of that to you. But I suppose you could also fast from media. Some people fast from sleep. They give up an hour of sleep in order to pray. Um, I've heard rumors that people can fast from their smartphone, but I'm not sure that it's ever been verified. Uh, We may find that out. Lent is almost upon us. Um, But fasting, what fasting is not, it's not a way to manipulate God, okay? So I prayed and God didn't answer my prayer, so maybe I can get God to give me what I want if I fast and pray. Eh, That didn't work. So if God didn't give me what I want when I pray, He didn't give me what I want when I fast and pray, maybe if I fast and I pray and I kneel, maybe God will do what I want then. Or maybe I should fast, I should pray and fast and kneel, and climb up steps on my knees as a form of self-afflict. Do you see where this is going? It's not a way to earn things from God. It's not a way to make God do something. Fasting is a way, simply, it it gives us more time to pray. It reestablishes prayer as a priority in our life, and it It's a way by means of our bodies to reassert that our great need is for God. We need Him even more than food, we're saying. One author whose name gives me fits, Macrina Wiederker, or something like that, she writes about fasting this way. She says, fasting makes me vulnerable and reminds me of my frailty. It reminds me to remember that I, if I am not fed, I will die. And standing before God hungry, I suddenly know who I am. I am the one who is poor, called to be rich in a way that the world does not understand. I am the one who is empty, called to be filled with the fullness of God. I am one who is hungry, called to taste all the goodness that can be mine in Christ. It's a way to remind ourselves that our need for God is greater than our need even for our favorite sitcom or zombie drama, okay? Even food itself, even 
even than the need to check social media on our phones. Our need for God is greater than all these things. And when we fast and we choose instead of to participate in these things, some of which are very good things, we are saying, I'm reasserting the priority of God in my life over all these things. So while prayer, while fasting does not make my prayers more powerful necessarily, it makes me a better prayer. It affects me and how I pray. Now, um, a week from Wednesday, I believe, is Ash Wednesday. That's the start of a season that the church historically calls Lent with an E, Lent. And uh, it's a season of preparation for the cross, for Christ's death for us. And it's marked often by a season of sacrifice and intensified prayer. And it's a great season. There are a lot of great resources for it, a a couple daily devotionals that are outstanding on our website. Just search Lent, and it'll pull up the Lenten resources page. Um, But it is a time when you, if you're not accustomed to it, you could experiment with fasting in some way, a season that would be really appropriate for you on a weekly basis or some things on a daily basis, to fast from certain things, to seek God more earnestly, and to use the time that you would have given to other things to give to prayer. Now, Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, laid out fasting as a private discipline, like prayer, He said. But here in Acts 13, we see it can be deployed with a group, okay? either in the leaders of the church, perhaps even the larger church, like prayer again. And so I would imagine as a result of our study of Acts, we will find from time to time that our elders are going to call us as we are able to fast and to pray as we face important decisions, trials, and opportunities as a church family. You know, it's interesting, one of our presidents actually called our nation to fast one time. President Abraham Lincoln, amidst the Civil War in 1863, he designated April 30th as a day of national humiliation, fasting, and prayer. Listen to what our president, President Lincoln, wrote about this. He said, it's the duty of nations as well as of men who owe their dependence upon the overruling power of God to confess their sins and transgressions in humble sorrow. Don't you love listening to our presidents talk that way? Yet with assured hope that, continued, that genuine repentance will lead to mercy and pardon and to recognize the sublime truth announced in the Holy Scriptures and proven by history that those nations only are blessed whose God is the Lord. The awful calamity of civil war, which now desolates the land, may be but a punishment afflicted upon us for our presumptuous sins to the needful end of our national reformation as a whole people. Intoxicated with unbroken success, we have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace, too proud to pray to the God that made us. We have grown in numbers, wealth, and power as no other nation has grown, but we have forgotten God. And so prayer and fasting are ways that we humble ourselves before Almighty God and exalt Him as great, remind ourselves again that He is greater and our great need is for Him. And so in this little church in Antioch in 45 AD, there's this little prayer gathering, and they are praying and fasting and seeking God, quite possibly about how the gospel is to spread from their little place outward. 
And God answers through the Spirit by saying, set aside Saul and Barnabas for the work that I have for them. And of that little prayer meeting, John Piper wisely writes, this fasting changed the course of history. He says, it's almost impossible to overstate the historical importance of this moment in Antioch in the history of the world. (coughs) Excuse me. Before this word from the Holy Spirit, there seems to have been no organized mission of the church beyond the eastern seacoast of the Mediterranean. Before this, Paul had made no missionary journeys westward to Asia Minor, Greece, or Rome, or Spain. Before this, Paul had not written any of his letters, which were all the result of his missionary travels beginning here. This moment of prayer and fasting resulted in a missions movement that would make the Christianity the dominant religion of the Roman Empire within two and a half centuries and would yield 1.3 billion adherents of the Christian religion today. Thirteen of the 29 books of the New Testament were the result of the ministry that was launched in this moment of prayer and fasting. He says, so I think it's fair to say that God was pleased to make worship and prayer and fasting the launching pad for a mission that would change the course of world history. Is there not a lesson here for us? All of this was birthed out of that little prayer gathering of worship, prayer, and fasting in Antioch. So this Friday night, we gather for prayer as a church, and this room will be transformed, and there'll be the continents will be laid out, and there'll be wherever our missionaries are all around the world, and North Wake's blessed to have missionaries all around the world, there'll be prayer requests in each of those continents, and you'll move as God leads you from continent to continent to continent, and you'll pray for God to do a great and mighty work through the North Wakers that are sent all around the world. You should come and pray. What might God do if the church at North Wake chose to pray? Every, every first Sunday of the month or thereabouts, we hold a corporate prayer gathering in this room and we pray just like in the first century. We pray. What might God do if all of us showed up for prayer? Has that a priority for you that has dropped off the radar? If it is, I'd like to challenge you, put it back to the front. Some of you have never come to an, hour, an hourly prayer meeting like that because you think, pray for an hour, are you kidding me? Look, let me tell you a spiritual secret. You don't grow in prayer by not praying. Okay? It does not work that way. Come, join us, learn to pray. While they're worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. And then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. You know, other than what's going on in the church, you see that the Holy Spirit responds amazingly to the church's fasting and prayer and worship. First, He speaks to the church, likely through one of these prophetic leaders, and says, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. He speaks, and then he sends, being sent out by the Holy Spirit. And in between there, there's work that he has called them to do. He speaks, 
He calls, He sends, and as we'll see in just a few verses, He empowers those who are sent in an unstoppable way. Before we get to that story, though, do you notice how entangled the work of the Spirit and the work of the church are in sending? The Spirit speaks to the church about setting apart Barnabas and Saul. And Barnabas and Saul have already been doing this work. If you went back to Acts chapter 11, you'd read that they'd been teaching and ministering around Antioch for a year now. And they are amongst the leaders in the church. The church affirms their call. It hears their call and sends them out. And for those of you who are here and you're preparing for the mission field, to self-call is biblically a dangerous thing. Make sure that you are serving the church in such a way that our leaders can affirm what God is doing in you and your fittedness to go and fulfill the call that you believe that you've heard. Um, And so as a result, in this case, the church is glad to send two of her key leaders out to serve elsewhere. And let's look in on an example that happens of that unstoppable spread of the gospel, starting in verse 5. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and and they had John to assist them. And when they had gone through the whole island as far as Pephos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar Jesus. And he was with the proconsul. Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elimus the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. So Barnabas and Saul are here in Antioch, right, in Syria. And they travel from Antioch down to Seleucia, about 20 miles or so down to the coast. They get on a ship. They take about a 60-some mile ride out to Cyprus, and they land in Salamis. And they travel throughout here. It says that they're preaching in the synagogues. And they get to Paphos, clear at the other end of the island, 100 miles or so away. And they meet this guy named Bar-Jesus, also called Elimus, same guy, The latter is some kind of nickname he has. He's described as a Jewish magician or sorcerer, which is absolutely as weird as it sounds, that you would be a Jew and a sorcerer at the same time. It also says he's a false prophet. Yes, they do exist. Not all prophets are true. This is a false prophet. And when you put these descriptors together, a Jewish sorcerer who's a false prophet you would probably say, aha, this is not the guy that I want to go to for spiritual counsel. But that's exactly, it appears, his role with the Roman proconsul, kind of the senator or ruler of the entire island of Cyprus. He is Sergius Paulus, a spiritual counsel. Uh, Someone has suggested it was like, uh, he was like the court astrologer that they consulted for spiritual guidance. Um, And we'll find him to top it all off, actively opposing the gospel in Sergius Paulus' life. Now, Sergius Paulus is the other guy in our story. He was the proconsul, the Roman ruler on this entire island of Cyprus. He's described as a man of intelligence who is spiritually open and interested in what Paul has to say. 
So you get a sense there's an intense spiritual battle going on around Sergius Paulus. You've got the, no one less than the Apostle Paul coming to, to share the good news of Jesus with him. And then you've got this Jewish sorcerer, false prophet guy opposing that and trying to convince him not to believe. It says, um, those who were scattered because of the persecution. Oh, excuse me, I'm going to skip that verse. That's not what I want to say. It says, Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him, at Bar Jesus, and said to him, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, Will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see for a time. And immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Okay. Now, in case you didn't pick up on it, that right there is what you call a rebuke. Okay? He's been rebuked. That's the, str- the strongest rebuke I've ever heard someone give. I've never, I've never done anything like that. But it's precisely what was needed to break this spiritual battle that was going on around Sergius Paulus, whom Paul had been sent to rescue. Um, the seer now, the, the false prophet, the seer, who wanted the proconsul not to see the truth about Jesus, is now rendered unable to see himself. It's kind of a divine irony playing out here. And clearly, it's as though God has Sergius Paulus in his crosshairs, and no one, nothing is going to stop him from hearing the gospel. You know, Paul and Barnabas traveled 20 miles down to the port, and then they catch a 65-mile boat ride out to Cyprus, and then they work their way from one end of the island all the way to the other. And it says, it does mention that they, they spoke in synagogues along the way, but the only name that's mentioned on the whole journey in terms of someone who was responding to the gospel is this man, Sergius Paulus. And the love of God for Sergius is not about to be derailed by some Jewish sorcerer and false prophet. So Paul blisters him with this spirit-filled, it says, rebuke and a miraculous affliction of blindness. Now, again, obviously, you don't want to be the guy that stands in the way of the gospel and tries to talk someone out of it. You may suffer greatly for your failed efforts. There is here a greater power at work than dark magic. And that is the very Spirit of God drawing a man to himself. And our passage closes with saying, Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. So the signs... The miracle serves the teaching. They make it beautiful and believable for Sergius Paulus. And so clearly what we see here is that when God is drawing a man to himself, he will go to whatever lengths he has to for him to believe. The rescuing love of God is unstoppable. Theologians like to call it an effectual calling or an irresistible 
grace. It is the unstoppable love of God. Now, some of you have had, maybe for years, an unshakable burden to pray. To pray for a friend or a family member who is far from Christ. And that burden has been inescapable for you. They are always on your prayer list. When you talk with somebody about who do you want to see come to faith in Christ, they are at the top of your list. And you have prayed and prayed and prayed. You would even be willing to go without food and pray for this person that you know and love so deeply and who is so deeply ensnared and far from Christ. Now, I think there's a really, really good chance that when you have that kind of burden for someone, that you are part of God's unstoppable rescue for that person. That what he has in mind is that through your prayers, one day as you persevere, that grace is going to cause them to yield to the love of God. No matter how intense the opposition, no matter how, how deep or dark the sin, I believe that's why you have that burden to pray. I ran across a testimony from a guy named Chuck Sackett. He's a pastor now in Lincoln, Illinois. And this is what he writes. He says, uh, I grew up outside the church, but when I learned about the God and Country Award in the Boy Scouts, I wanted it. If that meant going to church, then that's what I was determined to do. So he says, each week I walk from my house to the little church building in the next block, and I walk past this one home every time, the Reinards. He says, later I actually worked for them doing some yard work. But he says, I attended that little church on the next block just long enough to get the award, and then I quit. Now, 12 years later, he says, after I became a Christian and a pastor, I learned that Mr. and Mrs. Reinard were in a nursing home nearby, and out of friendship for their family, my wife and I decided to pay them a visit. And after, after a delightful visit, Gail and I turned to leave, and he says, I don't remember which one of them spoke, but I'll never forget what they said. They said, do you remember when you used to walk to that little church. He says, we've not missed one day since, not one day since, praying that God would do something in your life. So for 12 years, he says, that elderly couple prayed for me every day, prayed that God would one day do something in my life. I had no other Christian influence at that time. But he says, but eventually I would become a Christian and a pastor. And then he says this. He says, I was prayed into the kingdom. There is no other explanation. And if God has given you a burden like that, where you are willing to pray for years if need be, for someone to be free from their sin and to know the love of God, then know that that's from God. That's the work of the Spirit in you. And in all likelihood, it's part of His irresistible, unstoppable, effectual plan to bring them to faith in Christ. And so what I'd like us to do, the worship team's going to come up now and lead us in our closing song of worship. But if there is someone that's on your heart like that, if you have a burden to pray for somebody such that you would be willing this morning even to go without food on occasion to pray for them, if your burden is that strong, that unshakable, then I'd like to encourage you as we sing the first stanza of this song, if you'll make your way down to the front here, 
and bow down here as you're able. Um, we as a church family would like to pray for you that you would remain faithful to that burden and that God would break through in the lives of those that you love and care about and are praying for. So as we sing this first stanza, make your way downhill and then we'll step out of the song and uh, we as a church family want to pray for you and for the ones that you love. <laughs>